So we are in Proverbs chapter 5, and uh, as you're turning there with me, I, I'm curious to know how many of you in the church have ever heard of a kudzu vine. Anyone ever heard of the kudzu? There's a few people that have the kudzu vine. The kudzu vine, for those that don't know, was introduced um, at, at the Japanese pavilion in the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. It was brought to the United States, it had been in Japan, and it was planted. It's now common along roadsides and other um, areas throughout most of the southeastern United States. And it's been spreading so fast that it's been spreading at 150,000 acres annually. Now think about that. That's how fast this thing is growing. Um, And it's literally swallowing the southern, southeastern United States. It's become a huge issue in the south. And if you drive down there, you're ever driving down to Disney World, you'll see these trees that are literally engulfed by these kudzu vines. And it's, it's amazing. The government's had to take notice. They're literally sp- spending millions of dollars trying to get rid of it. And on warm days, it can grow an entire foot. And normally it grows at the rate of 60 feet per year. I mean, that's incredible. Um, it hasn't swallowed up Japan because the island of Japan is very small, so they, they can successfully keep it trimmed. But in the southern U.S., where it has some space, it can kill and swallow up everything. Now, why do I tell that story to you, and what does that have to do with our subject today? Um, this, the story and the, the, the picture of the kudzu is a picture of uh, what's going on in our world today with sexuality, and that it is out of control. It's, it's something that started off. It started off good, and when it's in the right context and kept in the right spheres and parameters, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. But when it goes outside of it, it literally swallows life. And our culture is obsessed with it all over the place. I mean, we see it. We're assaulted everywhere. And I know that there are many in here that have uh, been assaulted and struggled and, and are the victims of and understand exactly how painful it can be. And there, you can speak from firsthand experience. And, and we can hold on and try to continue to fight um, or give in to it and just let it go and literally destroy our lives. Or we can fight it and try to, to trim it back. And that means trimming it back to, to where God's word has laid it out. How God has ordained sexuality to be. And today we're going to look within the, the scriptures and see in very forthright language God presenting a case for biblical sexuality. He has created it, he has deemed it wonderful, but he has deemed it to stay within certain parameters, and he warns us what happens when they go outside of those parameters. And that is what we're going to look at today. We're going to see what are those parameters, how can we apply them and put them into our lives, and how can we live and find joy in the way that God wants us to. So I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to Proverbs 5, if you haven't already, um, and let's pray as we get into our message time. Father, we come before you knowing that uh, our world is just saturated. Lord, many of us in this room have struggled. Some have struggled for years. Some are struggling right now. Lord, we pray that your word might act as a physician's knife that might cut away any of the unbelief, that might help us to see the reality of who you are, that our vision might not be clouded by anything within our culture, that you might show us clearly and accurately by the power of your spirit working and bringing alive your word to our hearts, that we might see the reality of who you are, how you have made us to be, and how we might pursue a life with you for your glory and our joy. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's jump right in to Proverbs chapter 5, shall we? Uh, Solomon is writing this, and he is writing this as, in essence, to his sons. And we see it as a metaphor. It's, it's a greater audience uh, in mind. And he says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end... She is as bitter as wormwood, sharper as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So I want to focus on for a moment. I want to go to verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And she is, she is speaking to him, and this could be two ways for both men and women, that her speech is as smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter as as wormwood. In other words, there's promises being made. There's a conversation that is happening. And, and the reality is, though, it's a false promise. And that's what immorality does. Immorality gives us false promises. All sin gives us a false promise. It promises to give us pleasure, but it doesn't tell us of the consequences that are going to come with it. It's going to say it's going to be fine. You're not going to have to worry about it. But God has ordained, ordained within the world that there are certain things that when we do, there will be consequences and ramifications for our choices that we make. He has ordained that. Just like he has put laws, physical laws within the world, such as the law of gravity, there are laws spiritually, and this is a law. And what the Word is doing and this passage is doing is helping us to see um, by exposing the lies that immorality promises. That's the point one that I want you to write down. Exposing the lies that immorality promises. Because Immorality does promise the world, but it can deliver none of it. See, immorality promises to be, and I'm going to give you these, I'm going to break them down one by one. Promises to be sweet, satisfying, special, and secret. Sweet, satisfying, special, and secret. I want us to really look at this within our text as we break this down. Now, when he says here, speeches like honey, sweet and tasty in the ancient world, it was a true delicacy. Sugar didn't exist or was a, a known commodity, not that it didn't exist, but was still as of yet an unknown. She's flattering him. She promises that their dangerous liaison will be a fantastic time. See, Satan always tries to present sin beautifully, but it's like glittered glitter on garbage what it's like. I remember being a youth pastor, and we took garbage, and we put glitter on it, and said, does it make it look better? It looks better. It's still garbage. And see, that's what Satan does. He takes glitter on it and goes, look how beautiful it is. You're not going to have any consequences. It's not going to hurt. See, sin always looks to us as if it will be a wonderful experience, and it is for a moment. It makes it look so beautiful, so refreshing, and so satisfying. See, her speech is smooth as oil. It says it's smooth as oil. She promises that it will be satisfying. See, the oil referred to here is unfiltered olive oil. And this kind of oil was produced by a mortar and a pestle breaking it down or by grinding olives in a stone press. And it was used for ceremonial purposes, uh, religious observations, for the anointing of priests and kings, or to anoint the body after a bath, or in cooking, lamps, and as medicine both internally and externally. It symbolized gladness and prosperity. And its absence indicated sorrow or humiliation. 
Now, he's saying that it's going to be smooth, it's going to be satisfying. Now, it's interesting here that this is a double entendre, actually. Scholars, most scholars believe that this isn't just referring to a conversation. This was referring to, how do I put this delicately? This is referring to their actual liaison using metaphorical language to indicate it. That's probably about as PC as I can be. Um, her mouth is dripping his honey. There's all of this thing that's really going on here. And it's, it's promising to him to be sweet and satisfying and special. She's saying it's going to be special. Now, I want you to skip over to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs 5, 6, and then sections of 7 kind of cover this entire subject. So I'm going to be jumping back and forth within, you, within these. But Proverbs chapter 7 says this, 7 verse 11. She is loud, talking about the adulteress. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. And now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. She's making it sound religious, by the way, that she's observant. She's, it's a good thing. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from, covered linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now, her husband's not there. We read right before that he'd gone on a trip. He won't be back till the new moon, and he'd taken a full bag of money with him. So she shows up knowing that he's gone, and she says, I've come out to meet you. It's just you and me. It's a special thing. No one else. Look at all I've done for you. Look how great it is. So, see, sin promises to be sweet, satisfying, and special, and also a secret. Secret. Look at verse 19 of Proverbs chapter 7. For my husband is not at home, He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home with much seductive speech. She persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Says, promises that it's going to be okay. He's not going to know. He's not going to be around. It's going to be secret. No one's going to know. It's our secret. See, sin always presents itself that way. That's how it always looks to each one of us, or we wouldn't do it. If we would see sin in all of its horror and stop and think about what it is, we would run away. It's just like the devil. The devil doesn't appear with a goatee, horns, pitchfork, and goat legs and go, bah! He doesn't do that. He, he looks suave. He, he looks good. He's going to look like someone you can trust. Because he's a master deceiver. Even, he even masquerades as an angel of light. He can look holy. He can look religious. He can look put together. But he tries to cover sin. See, God's word shows that sexual immorality ends up being harmful, heartbreaking, humiliating, and leads to hell. Harmful, heartbreaking, humiliating, and leads to hell. Look at verse 4 of 5, chapter 5, verse 4. Like I said, I'll be skipping back and forth. In verse 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. It was, uh, wormwood is a bitter herb that produced a very bitter flavor, sometimes used to treat worms. When it was united, united to gall, it was poisonous. It's just bitter. Some scholars believe the entire thing to be a world, uh, actually a wordplay, a euphemism describing their illicit encounter of what happens. Some believe that he actually is getting a venereal disease from their encounter. 
So he's saying it's, it's harmful. In the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. It is harmful to him. It's interesting. It's a lot of people think that, oh, I can get by with it. It's not that big a deal. They just play it off. Hey, friends with benefits, not a huge deal, um, no strings attached. And that's how the world presents it. We see movies on it. They never show the consequences of it, though, by the way. They make everything sound good. And it's interesting, when people start to suffer the consequences, suddenly they're not there any longer. You don't see that. It's not the real world that, the, that we see presented on our televisions and on websites and in the news so often in that regard. See, what happens to him? He's going to be harmed. Now, notice he's also going to be heartbroken. It'll be heartbreak, heartbreaking. It appeared one way, but it, leered, uh, but it led to a complete other. Look at verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. See, verse 9 indicates that he will lose his vitality or his splendor, loss of reputation. Verse 10, verse 10 means he will have a loss of strength to those who are merciless. There's no, there's no spiritual power to stand up against them, no inner integrity to be able to fight, no strength of character to take a stand for what, against what is wrong. And even all the money that he earns will go to strangers, perhaps referring to the adulterous wife's greater family who have tried to blackmail him, who have demanded money for his life as a consequence for his adultery. Some even believe that when it says that his body and flesh are consumed, it might mean uh, he had a disease from their encounter. You know, it's interesting how this plays out. We see this history. We see it in uh, politics all the time. We see it on our news. Probably one of the stories that you've not heard about is actually one of our founding fathers, uh, Alexander Hamilton. He was the first secretary of the treasury. Some considered him to be a genius. Um, he set up our entire financial system, not the one that we have now, but then um, he set it up. And uh, matter of fact, his nemesis was Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was basically everybody that disagreed with him's nemesis. And Alexander Hamilton, and he had such a hard time together, they didn't even want to be around one another, even though they'd been in Washington's cabinet together initially. Uh, but it became so bad that when Jefferson became president, he told his first secretary of the treasury to go and find out how much Alexander Hamilton had corrupted the financial system. And when his secretary of the treasury came back, Jefferson said, make a report. I want to know how bad is it? He goes, it's not bad. It's the most perfect system ever devised by man. He was a genius. He really was. But he had uh, an affair. With a, he was 36 years old, had an affair with a 21-year-old girl named Maria Reynolds. Now, Maria gets, ends up, uh, pleads with him, says that her husband has gone away, he's been abusive to her, she needs help. He goes for the damsel in distress, comes to her, they end up getting really close, turns into an affair, turns out the whole thing was set up. Her husband had set the entire thing up and used then blackmailed Hamilton to get money. And so for years, three years, this affair went on. And three years, he has Hamilton under his thumb. And he is blackmailing him the entire time. Refuse, says he's going to tell everybody the news if it, if it um, 
And if it gets out, he's ruined politically. Uh, his reputation would be marred. He'd no longer be a candidate for president of the United States. And uh, he himself ends up getting arrested for a scam that he participates in. And then he's in prison. He tells Hamilton, get me out of here. I'm going to tell everybody Hamilton can't do it anymore. He reveals to two men uh, him, that he had an affair because they were accusing him of financial impropriety as well with Reynolds. And he says, no, I didn't have financial impropriety. I did have an affair with his wife. And, they, and at the time, there was a gentlemanly agreement that it wouldn't come public. But James Monroe, who is very close with Thomas Jefferson, writes Jefferson, and Jefferson puts it in the papers. Pretty much effectively destroying and, and, um, his, uh, his, the possibility, or at least greatly hindering him, to become president of the United States. And see, it is heartbreaking to him to think that you have such a smart man, and he made such a, a horrible choice. And he had no idea where it would lead and how it would get out. See, it is harmful, heartbreaking, and it is humiliating. Humiliating. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly congregation. See, it would be, it would be, it would be absolutely humiliating in the eyes of the community. That's one of the hardest things to face, the humiliation in the sight of those we see every day. We've all had some experience where we had to go to school or go to work and deal with some aspect of humiliation because of something we forgot or a poor choice that we had made, but here it is much bigger. I mean, when I was a, a teenager, a junior in high school, I grew my hair out one year, and they called me Shaggy Dog, okay, because my voice cracked like Shaggy, too. They said, Shaggy? So I had this long hair, and then I had a basketball game one night, and I went to, uh, I, thought, I decided to just cut my hair. So I go to the barber, 83-year-old men, I walk in the door, and he's sleeping in the chair, and there's no one else there. Not a good sign. Not a good sign. But I, I, my dad took, him, took me to him when I was a kid. I thought, he's quick, I can walk in, and, and um, I, I had to go get ready to get on the bus to go to a basketball game right after I got my hair cut. So I, I get in my hair cut, sit in the chair, and I fall asleep. And I wake up, and there's a pile of hair in my hand. And I'm like, oh. And I look in the mirror, and it seems fine. I'm like, oh, good, pay him. And get in the car. I get in the car, and I look in my rearview mirror. My rearview mirror is looking down on my head, and he'd shaved me bald right at the top, and I couldn't fix it. So I go to this basketball game, and the whole crowd laughing at me. I can see the people laughing at me the whole game. And it's humiliating. I'm like rocking on the court. I look like one of those monks, you know? And people were laughing at me. And then the next day, I had a, a singing and dancing competition I was involved in. We had bus left at 7 a.m., so I didn't have time. I had my mom's friend come over, and she tried to fix my hair. And I drove, uh, got on the bus. We went to St. Louis where we had this uh, performance at the Adams Mark Hotel. It's from 300-some people. My conductor goes, hey, you want to see something funny? And he brings me out front. He goes, Travis, come here for a minute. I said, come out. He goes, show him your head. It's went like this. The whole crowd just interrupted, and it's humiliating. Now, fortunately, I, 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 I can handle it. It's not that big a deal to me. But, I mean, that, it can be humiliating when you have something like that happen. Have you ever had something that humiliating you didn't want everybody else to know? Something happened at school? Something happened in your workplace? Now, this is infinitely bigger. And this is not funny humiliating. This is shameful humiliating. I mean, it is humiliating. He is in utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And they're all laughing at him. And he can't get away, especially in the ancient world. There's no just a place to retreat, get away from. You see these people day in and day out. They're there when you get food. You get water from the well. Uh, you can't, like, go to a different store. I mean, that's why we kind of see with the woman caught in the, um, not caught in the act of duct, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, she's coming at an off hour so no one would see her. So no one would see her. 
because she didn't want to deal with the humiliation that she was suffering in the greater community. It is humiliating, and it also leads to hell. It's interesting. Look at verse 5. Her feet go down to the de- to death. Her step- steps follow the path of Sheol. Now, the word Sheol is a nondescript abode of the dead, but according for, to the New Testament, we can see that such behavior leads to hell. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. Page 955. 955, you have a few Bible. And this is something that gets overlooked when we see people in the world today. They're saying, hey, we're all sinners. It's true. We are. I'm not going to deny that. But there is a difference between living in a state of sin and struggling with sin. Living in a state of sin means you're okay with it. You're not fighting it. Struggling with it means you're fighting it day in and day out. And you should be becoming more and more holy and growing. But here we see this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, many of us think that we can continue on and play with it, and it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. God God knows the heart. doesn't matter what we say. doesn't matter what uh, PhDs on television say. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. The whole world can celebrate it, and that doesn't change God. God will be proven true, though every man will be proven a liar. And you can have and surround yourself with people that agree with you and are really involved in it and not going to care, world on it, but God cares. Matter of fact, God cares so much that he sent his son. He loved you so much that he didn't want to see you stay in your sin, that he provided some, a substitute, one who would die in your place. He saw how far off you were. We were. And he had mercy on us and gave his son as that love gift to us to pay the price for our sin that we wouldn't have to pay the wrath of God or suffer the wrath of God or pay the penalty because we couldn't pay it. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the capital. We couldn't raise it. We couldn't get it from anybody else. He offered his son to pay that price, to set us free. And that's we are going to struggle with it. But we know that that power of sin has been broken on our lives. And as we grow in grace, we learn to put to death the misdeeds of the sinful nature. You know what the most painful thing about this whole thing is? Look at verse 11. And at the end of your life, you groan. End of your life, you groan. You know one thing that I see in every, I mean, most, almost everyone's life, or actually, let me take that back. The most tragic thing to see in someone's life, when they get near their death, is regret. I've seen so many people going, why? Why? It's suddenly the time's up. There's no other opportunity. There's never going to be another day. There's never going to be another season. No chance to, to do that again. It's up. Time's up. Game over. And that they, they stop and they go, I, I, I didn't, I could have. I di-. No, there's no more. No second chances. It's, it, our day is up. Our clock, is, our, our numbers are called. Regret is the most horrible thing because it never leaves. People think, ah, I'll deal with it later. You know, shame doesn't have a shelf life. It doesn't. And like I've said, I've seen people and I've counseled people in their 70s that are still struggling with stuff they did in their 20s. It's been 50 years, 50 years, and they can't, it's still as fresh there because God won't let it go. God has held their heart and is convicting them because you have decided to transgress God. And God will not be mocked. That what a person sows, they will also reap. That's where that's the beauty of Christ, by the way. 
that he came to set us free, to wake us up, to allow us to chance at a clean slate, a U-turn, to give us hope that we don't have to continue in sin, that we don't have to live with regret, that he bore our shame on Calvary's tree, that he took our sins upon himself to set us free. We must not live with regret. Now, all of this is to say it is better to avoid sexual immorality. That's the next point. If we were to embrace biblical sexuality, it requires us doing everything in our power so that we might be avoiding the painful consequences of immorality. Notice verse 8. Keep your way far from her. The word, is, the word keep here is in the imperative. It's command. We are commanded to stay away from her, far away, not even going near the door of her house. Now, you could say her or him. Um, in Proverbs, the wisdom is often, uh, a woman is used as a personification of wisdom. Um, and she's used at the beginning of the, the Proverbs, at the end of Proverbs, and shows kind of the, the ideal w- woman. Um, but it's seen, uh, wisdom is personified as a woman, as is folly in the first chapters of Proverbs. So it's, it, we have to understand the language that's going on here. So it's, in, in essence, both for men and women, avoiding the painful consequences of immorality. Now, I'm going to give you some quick steps to walk through how we can do this. First of all, how do we avoid it? It requires recognizing our sinful inclinations. Recognizing our sinful inclinations. Every one of us, again, we're born sexual beings. That's great, fantastic. But they have to occur within the parameters God designed, and that is a covenant relationship between a husband and wife exclusively in the bond of marriage, period. End of story. I mean, that's how Scripture defines it. I'm not here to argue with culture. Culture can say whatever it wants, but God's Word is going to be proven true. It's going to be proven true time and time again. But we have a sinful inclination. We want to fight against that. And we have to understand that we are to fight it and channel it. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. That's page 1011. 1011. I'm going to be skipping through these rather quickly. Uh, time is uh, short today. Excuse me. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. People say, well, God, if you don't want me to be in this situation, why would you allow me to do it? Well, God gives you free will, moron. I don't know how else to put it. It's the stupidest excuse I hear. People are like, well, God, why'd you let me do this? Why do you care right now? You want to do what you want to do. I mean, I like how C.S. Lewis said it. There's two people within the world. There are those that God says, or, or that say to God, your will be done. And there are those that God says to them, your will be done. I'm going to let you choose. Are you going to choose me? I'm, lo- I'm allowing you to make a choice. Are you going to choose to follow or not? And if you don't, then uh, this is the consequences of it. It's like with my kids. I can say, don't do that. And then they do it. I mean, am I the one to blame? No. They're, and they're going to suffer the consequences of it. I say to my son, don't touch it. It's hot. He touches it. What happens? He gets burned. Does he blame me? How did you let me touch it? I told you. You're a sinner. That's what I tell them. Sin is serious. It is interesting, though, to the people that are doing adultery, it's no big deal. Look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, page 551. 551. I, I encountered this yesterday when I was having my, my quiet time, and I was struck by it. I'd never really thought of it until I sat and uh, 
read some commentary on it. Um, it says this, This is the way of the, an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. That's interesting. The way that I was reading this, it's basically saying she's like, she just like ate a meal. She committed adultery. It's like, not a big deal. It's just like eating food. It's just like having a meal. No big deal. Why are you making a big deal out of this? It's just sex. No, it's not. God's made it to be so much more that it is to be an example of God's union with us. God's love for his church. It's one of the greatest gifts that he's given unto us. He's laid it out. Here's another thing that we can do. We have to make sure that we are reigning in our reigning in our unbridled imagination. Recognizing our sinful inclinations, reigning in our unbridled imagination. Proverbs chapter 6, you can turn there if you want to, 625 through 26. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. See, what it says there is do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Don't fantasize about it. Don't fantasize about it. He's saying that we have to guard her thoughts. Don't think about her beauty and be intoxicated with what could be. This is referring to pornography as well. We're not to let it capture our hearts. For one, it's a lie. Pornography is a lie. It gives us the illusion that we're in control and that this person wants us and is ready to do whatever we want, but it's a complete lie. It's destroying lives. Matter of fact, even secular individuals are picking up how horrific this is. And people are now going to, uh, you're seeing, especially in the UK, people are standing up, not even Christian, are saying this is destroying marriages, family, and our children, one by one. It's destroying lives. It's destroying people in the church. It's all over the place. It is out of control. He's saying that we must be reigning in our imagination. And it's interesting. It may not seem like it costs much monetary, monetarily, to have this liaison equivalent to a loaf of bread, but the real cost is, is that it's going to destroy your life. That's the back end. It's backloaded. See, we have to rein in our minds, both men and women. The imagination looks different to both men and women. Men have a tendency to be more visual, so they can see it and imagine it. That's not always across the board, but more often than not. Women have a tendency to be more story-centered, the romance of it. That's why romantic novels are so popular with women. You don't see men reading romantic novels very often. I don't see that. Um, I don't know if you do, but I don't think so. It captures both of their imaginations. Both genders have to rein that in. Married, barely married, married and alone, etc. He can't dwell on her beauty or a woman cannot on the strength or neither can fantasize because we, if, as soon as we do that, the, the mind want to go to the action. It doesn't stay there. It always will have to continue on. Now next, we have to make sure that we are refraining from compromising situations. So reining in our unbridled imagination, refraining from compromising situations. Now C.S. Lewis put it this way, in talking about sexual immorality, he wrote this letter to a friend. He says, We must learn by experience to avoid either trains of thought or social situations which for us, not necessarily for everyone, lead to temptations. Like motoring. He was British. Don't wait till the last moment before you put on the brakes. Common sense, right? I mean, have you ever had someone on the expressway right on your butt? And you're like, get off of me. And you want to brake just to get them away, right? 
And then, or, or are you one of those people that are late breakers? Are you a late breaker? That everybody in the car goes, ah, and stops. And they look at you and they said, I want to meet Jesus, just not this way. I mean, how are you, and he's saying there that in situations, you've got to put on the brakes gently, quietly, while the danger is still a good way off. It's interesting that this uh, woman, especially in Proverbs 7, and this young man, keep putting themselves willingly into these harmful and compromising situations. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 7 starts off with him milling around outside of her house. He's hanging around. He keeps putting himself in that situation. Don't do it. Don't do it. I've seen too many people that get into, I mean, uh, whether it's work affairs. I mean, I have a friend of mine. I'm not going to tell you his profession. But he was at his work, and one of the, the women that worked there, she, she blatantly walked in. She goes, I will be your mistress. She offered that to him. And he goes, she was beautiful. And I, I said, what would you do? He's like, I, I, I told her no. I'm like, well, good. But she kept after him, and finally he had to quit. Because he couldn't be in the environment any longer. He treasured his marriage more. And he gave up a ton of money and went into some fierce financial difficulty for a long time. But I'd, he wanted to save his marriage. He wanted to honor God first. That's tough. I mean, this means for, for anybody refraining from compromising situations. That's what I love about the story of Joseph, man. Joseph's a great dude. He's a, Joseph is, uh, he's, you know, God, he had a messed up life. I mean, here he was, honored of God, following God. He gets betrayed by his brothers. They sell him into slavery. I mean, my brother hated me, but I don't know if he'd sell me into slavery. He sold him into slavery. He goes off, works for Potiphar, and in Potiphar's house, he works his way up. So he's in slavery. He's going to make the best of the situation, honor God despite the circumstance. And then Potiphar's wife starts going, mm-mm, you look good. Matter of fact, says that she looked at him as good and form in appearance. In other words, she thought he was fine. If we were to use a popular vernacular. And she just said, hey, come, come lay beside me. He's like, eh, not going to do that. And finally she kept pressing him. And he's like doing everything in his power to get away from her. That's what I love about it. In, in Proverbs, um, Genesis 39, it says that he refuses to listen to her, lie beside her, or even be, way, be, even be with her in any way. He stayed away from her. She couldn't stand the rejection, though. And then she entrapped him and had him arrested for attempted rape when he did no such thing. Still, though, his example is one for us to follow. Don't put yourself into compromising situations. Stay far away from the door of her house. And how does this work in 21st century America? Don't be alone with members of the opposite sex without someone else around. Um, if you have someone at work who is causing you problems or you feel like you're being tempted to do, um, you're being attracted to them, be honest about it, but try to be away from them. Try to bring someone else in. Uh, to help with accountability. If you have to be with them and work with them, don't close the door. Don't isolate yourself. Don't seek alone time. Don't be texting personal information about your life that you should only be uh, communicating with your spouse. I know of a guy, and I had a situation that I had to deal with, where the guy wouldn't hardly talk to his wife, but he would talk to this woman in the southern states and share everything personal. I'm like, he, not, he may not be having a physical affair, but he's sure having an emotional affair. And it's not far behind. And it was breaking his wife's heart because she wanted to be able to hear what he was struggling with and dealing with this. But he just says, nah, I'm going to talk to her about it. No, that's not how God wants us to be. So we have to be avoiding and making sure that we are staying away from compromising situations. We also must make sure that we are restraining what we share in personal conversation. 
restraining what we share in personal conversation. See, I have found that evil thoughts are birthed in the imagination. That leads to compromising situations, which leads to improper conversation, which leads to a sinful action and has disastrous ramifications. I've seen that time and time again. People start sharing very personal things, and they, and they get closer. The more that we share personal, the closer that we get. You have to be very careful of what you share about yourself in personal conversation and be ready to walk away. Here, avoiding sexual immorality also involves us realizing that there are deadly and definite ramifications. Deadly and definite ramifications. Look at verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. What happens? He dies for lack of discipline. And because of a great folly, he's led astray. Or look at Proverbs 7, verse 22. Flip over there. It says what happens after he gives in to this dangerous liaison in verse 22. And all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Think that's extreme? Well, what happens when the, fo- the husband finds out? Look at Proverbs 6, verse 30 through 35. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite. Proverbs 6, uh, 30, verse 31, um, 31 now. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all of the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no con- compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply with gifts. Or I like how it's described in other Proverbs. Can a man scoop burning coals on his lap and not get burned? There are certain and huge ramifications. It could mean death. It could mean God take you out. It could mean that someone else, is, it's going to cause jealousy, and they're going to respond. I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying this is what happens. Or you're, you're going to get hurt. It's going to have, you're also going to suffer a huge loss in reputation. So what if this all fails? What if you fail to fight and find yourself in a situation where the physical act of adultery is about to occur? Then make like Joseph and take off running from the temptation. This is Usain Bolt time. This is where you can become a fast runner. Move your feet. Don't think. Don't play it over your mind. Get up and run. Run from the temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18, on page 955, says this. I'm not going to have you turn there. can if you wish. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. May I just be very honest? For those that are doing that right now, you're hurting yourself. And you're also putting others around you at risk. I'm not saying this as a judgment. I'm saying this as a person, as a pastor that has seen too many lives ruined. Please don't. Stop. Before it's too late. God has given his son for you to set you free, not so you continue in it. He loves you so much. Don't spurn his rejection. Don't stay in it any longer. 
run from the temptation. Now, I don't just want to tell you what to avoid. I want us all to make sure that we are discovering the pathway to purity. I'm going to skip through these rather quickly. The pathway to purity. Verse 15 through 19. Uh, This is pretty interesting language in Hebrew, especially. Um, Some great uh, pictures here. Drink water from your own cistern. Doesn't take a genius to figure out what he's talking about here. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Of lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. No metaphor needed. So he's saying this pathway to purity is is basically you're going to guard the marriage bed and fight for your own marriage. Guard the marriage bed. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Guard the marriage bed. Fight for your marriage. Notice it says your wife of your youth. means that you got married when you're young, got married when you're young, and then uh, as you've aged, things have changed. Is it not? Do you look the same that you did 20 years ago? I mean, like I've said before, some of us age like wine, others age like milk. Right? That's how some of us are. And you know what, though? Let me, let me be the first one to be very honest with you that are here. Um, that spouse of yours is never going to look like they did when they were 18 to 22 years old. It's not going to happen. Okay? It's not going to happen. You're not going to recover that size you were 30 years ago. This is where our world is really screwed up. It has given us unrealistic pictures of what beauty is. I mean, even even this past week, the whole thing with Joan Rivers, looking at the interview with her, I could play, you could play tennis off of her facelift. I'm serious. I don't know how else to say that. I'm like, it's not real. And you look at, I mean, she even said her face. She's like, I can't feel my face. I can't feel my face. We have this unrealistic picture and understanding of beauty. And we say that it has to be a certain way, and we're always trying to hit that, that ideal. And you know what? That's not, we don't see that biblically. That we're to see beyond that. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, I'm not saying let yourself go. I'm saying you've got you to do your best to keep yourself up. I'm not, but both people have to come together and say, hey, you know, this is who we are. Let's look at the way God sees it. We're to cultivate it. We're to fight it. And we're to be guarding the marriage bed. Next thing we're to make sure that we are doing is obeying God's commands. Now, this might seem like a given, but the Bible says to the wives that you're to respect your husbands. Husbands, you're to love your wife and live with her in an understanding way. These are commands. We're to cultivate and treasure the most sacred love relationship we have on this earth. So we're to be guarding the marriage bed, observing God's commands, and dying to ourselves daily. Now, it could be saying delighting in our spouse. We could put that in there, too. Um, but dying to ourselves daily, meaning we have to put aside our own sinful desires and willing to, to take up our cross, to, to die to ourselves and give ourselves in a sacrificial love relationship to that person that God has for us. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but take the first letters of each of those words. And what is at the center of the entire thing that has to be in our marriage relationship? God. It requires God to be at the center of our relationship. And that's the the plea of purity comes from God himself. He has made us to be sexual beings, and it is wonderful. I love being married. I can't tell how many times I've said that to my wife. 
And she's just like, oh, please stop. I'm like, I love being married. I would not change it for anything in the world. I love being married. Can, can, can anyone else talk, testify to that? Yeah? There's some people who are like, eh, no. Uh, no. I hope so. you got to fight for it. And you can recover it. There's hope for you in your marriage. And if you might be a single and you may not be doing it the way that God wants you to do, there's hope for you. There's hope. And this is, you may, it might be off course and God is allowing you and giving you an opportunity to get back in. He gives you turns. He gives clean slates. He gives second chances because of what God has done. But you can't continue in your sin. You have to turn, repent of it. And, and you, can, you can do what you want to do, quite honestly. You can do whatever you want to do. But I'm telling you, and I'm pleading with you, this is what's going to happen if you don't follow the way God wants. Your relationship will never be completely blessed. You will never have that true peace and satisfaction. And not only that, you will never have, never have God's blessing on your relationship, ever. You won't. God's word won't allow it. God won't allow it. It's against his nature. He can't allow something to be blessed that he himself, that is against who he is. It's a violation of his character. But yet, he, that's why he gives his son to us. To give us that second chance that he died to set us free. And when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. God, God will cleanse you. If you have messed this up, you have blown it, then I, and maybe you are guilty of an affair right now and your spouse doesn't know, you need to tell them. You need to tell them, plain up. You need to straight up tell them. And you need to be ready to, su- you need to, be ready to suffer the consequences of it. But you, need, you might need help. You might need counsel. And there's restoration. It's going to take time. But you'll have a clean conscience in the sight of God. And that's what's most important, is it not? Because you'll be right with God. And it might take time. And that whole thing could end. But you've got to be right with God first. And, he will, and let him be your advocate. He'll be there to restore you. He'll be there to receive you. He'll be there to, to walk with you through those choices. And, and you may not have had an affair. Maybe you've done it wrong. Maybe you're, you've, you've completely lived your life in rebellion and you're suffering the consequences of it now. Then understand that God is a God of grace. God is a God of forgiveness. And there might be some people who did it right. But there's a lot in here that have done it wrong. And God's grace is for all of us. Because we all have areas and issues in our lives. It may not be in the sexual arena. It could be in something else. We all need God's grace and forgiveness alike. Without exception. Everyone in this room is. There is no one in here that is perfect before God. There is no one in here that has not sinned. There is no one in here that has not felt the sting of condemnation of God's word being proclaimed to their heart. But those who have felt that sting have felt God's word come down on a heavy weight. That's where God says, he's offering his grace to you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come in godly sorrow, not earthly sorrow, but godly sorrow, broken, penitent, confessing our sins to the Lord, and he will forgive, he will give new life, he will give grace, he will give hope, and he'll give you a new life. That he restores that which the locusts have eaten, that he makes streams flow in the desert places. That he helps that grow, which seems it could have no growth. God can do and no one else can do. He's the God of hope. He's the God of glory. He's the God of the impossible. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can have your word. And Lord, many of us in this room, we know what it's like to blow it. We, we feel the sting. We feel the weight on our shoulders. But, Lord, we want to honor you. And, Lord, for those that are still holding on to their sin, that are still feeling that, that burden of, 
of conviction, Lord, I pray that you make it even more firm that they might be brought back into right relationship with you, that they might see the Savior, that they may not write off the words that have been spoken today, but Lord, I pray that you might tattoo them, uh, tattoo it to their heart, that they might see and understand the truth of you, who, who you are, and experience the joy and the peace that comes when we come in confession and brokenness. As the psalmist said, sorrow may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And Lord, we know your faithfulness is great, that all who come to you in in brokenness and in faith, that you will in no way cast out, that you will receive, that you will seal, that you will make them into new creatures, a new creation, that you will restore them and grow them and turn them into beacons of light and testimonies, poems of your greatness and your mercy. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you, asking you to do what we cannot do, bring life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.